You're listening to UCL's Parliament and Me podcast series, celebrating our engagement with the world of policy. This year, the year of Vote 100, we're focusing on stories from current thinkers discussing their work with Parliament and the women who've inspired them to do so. I'm Emma Baxter, and this series is funded by the EPSRC and brought to you by UCL Public Policy, connecting the world of research with the world of policy. Journalist Rosie Bartlett joins us in the studio asking the questions. We hope you enjoy the series. Send us your thoughts on Twitter at UCL Public Policy. We've even had one article that just said these amendments are based on this research paper, which was great. <laughs> you know, that doesn't usually happen in such a neat way. I've always seen myself as an academic lawyer that was interested in policy, in making useful change, not just in talking to other academics. With me in the studio in London is UCL's Michael Veal, and joining us from Newcastle University Law School is Lillian Edwards. So if we can start by talking about where you both met. Yeah, um, Lillian's a professor of internet law. I'm a technology policy researcher uh, doing a PhD here at UCL. Lillian and I met when there were a lot of a lot of workshops and work around creating new collaborations around digital and technology policy in the UK. There were some around the Alan Turing Institute being set up and being scoped and seeing what the UK's role was here. And then there were other workshops that were sort of across the country. And it brought together a community, I think, thinking about uh, these issues and, and uh, how they're going to change in the 21st century. Well, like you said, we met, I think, at the Alan Turing Institute, maybe about two and a half years ago now. And I have worked um, on and off in AI since really a long time ago, since like the mid 80s, when AI was, you know, very different than now, when it didn't work very well, when we were building rule based systems. So I was at this seminar where people were talking about AI who didn't really seem to have a conception of its limits and its history, and they were really treating it as magical pixie dust. And then I became aware there was this voice in this room from this very young person that was who really got it, who really got it and, and understood it and was telling me things I didn't know. And I went over and said, you have to join my gang. Well, I was just quite annoyed with, um, with a lot of the big generalities in the field because there were lots of people who were worried that algorithms and algorithmic systems might discriminate against people, they might be biased, they might be opaque, and people might not be able to challenge them. For example, systems that were hiring people for jobs or selecting people to hire for jobs might be sexist because they might be based on previous hiring data, which was itself sexist. And there were lots of people who were imagining that practitioners in the field had no awareness or idea that this could happen. And I was quite sceptical of that because I think in a lot of fields, in fact, people do care, especially in the public sector, that systems are not just obeying the law, but are sort of in- inheriting some public values and they have to be held to- held to account for them. So I went out, went to locate the people who are procuring and developing these systems in governments today and just said, look, I'm not going to patronise you by saying that loads of academics know things you don't. Why don't you tell us about what you know, what your experiences you've had? And I think the same thing happens with technology lawyers. There's just a lot of issues that come round and around again. And people say, this stuff is all new. This stuff has never happened before. And that's what really, I think, drew me to Lillian, who was just saying, yes, this is maybe the third time this has happened. And maybe this time someone will listen. And Lillian, what inspired you to work with Michael? I think the other thing that was really useful, actually, was that we were both very drawn to learning from each other. Um, in that I think Michael was the first person I met who really had this incredibly solid rock-solid knowledge of what you could actually do with machine learning right now in both the public and the private sector, whereas a lot of what's out there is much shallower, but, you know, stuff that's accessible to non-technologists. 
Just explain to the non-technologists of us out there, machine learning. Machine learning is is really a software system that can improve itself when it sees more data or gets more experience about the world. So you feed data in, like historical data, and that might be, for example, about where crimes occurred, and then you can start to get an idea of where crimes might occur in the future based on that historical data. So it's really looking for patterns, looking for similarities. In these cases, for just uh, deciding on. Uh, who might get welfare provisions, for example, looking at investigations into child abuse, investigations into tax fraud. Um, uh, policing is a little bit different in the law, but that would also come under it in some contexts. So there's a lot of systems where there are maybe fully automated approaches that could be used, but more broadly, decision support systems. You've got frontline workers, you've got people, maybe social workers, who are, for better or worse, being told to rely more and more on automated systems. And these might not have been checked properly. So we were really interested in ensuring that there was due process and also due diligence around these systems. So would you say it's this connection with policy, this current connection with policy, because you're both working with policymakers currently, that's inspired the work? Yeah, I think so. I mean, certainly I've always seen myself as an academic lawyer that was interested in policy, in making useful change, not just in talking to other academics. That's been the whole story of my career and did a lot of work campaigning against stupid rules to try to stop file sharing. And yeah, when this came along, I think we were both drawn to the idea that we were at a crux moment when people were starting to legislate about this or to realise that existing legislation affected it. And I'd actually done some work on this from right back in 2013 and again had no idea that it was going to become so popular. So yeah, I think the fact that we both had an interest already and had some idea of what areas we needed to look at to to make decent policy happen. I think that really sort of did draw our work together. Yeah, in this case, it sort of took off from from that and some work that we were doing. It's also helpful because the field has been quite hyped and heavily publicised in the media. Uh, we even had I think we even had one article that just said these amendments are based on this research paper, which was great. <laughs> you know, that doesn't usually happen in such a neat way. I think because we had written this enormous article, it was probably the first major article that came out in the UK, apart from maybe one other. But I think it was the most comprehensive article that in an uh, an accessible way explained what machine learning was, what the problems were with bias, unfairness, um, accountability and so forth, and then actually proposed solutions and was pretty, again, accessible from both a legal and a technological point of view. So I think it became quite quickly, remarkably quickly, really, quite quite a point of reference, you know, which was obviously useful for us. It was like our calling card. We're looking at um, diversity in these podcasts because of Vote 100. And you talked about the solutions in that paper. Can you just give us a picture of what they were? One area I've been doing some work in is in employment law. So I think that's going to be another area that's really going to come to the fore because it was in the news really recently about Amazon hiring systems, you know, to cut down the space because so many thousands of people apply for jobs nowadays. Hiring systems are increasingly automated and partly algorithmic. You know, they just look at all the information about you. They look at your social media accounts. They look at stuff that's out there in public about you and they try and decide if you should be hired. And that's a classic kind of example of a machine learning algorithm that might or might not be fair. And that is the sort of thing that is being thrust into the data protection box right now. If you take the Amazon example, right, I think that's one everyone can understand. Amazon just admitted that they built an algorithmic 
hiring system, which they never actually used because they found out it was intrinsically discriminatory to women. So why was that? It's because they used their last 10 years records of who they hired. And they were mostly men, right? Because of historic partial hiring, because of historic discrimination, because historically perhaps fewer women had applied because they didn't think they had the right qualifications, maybe. Maybe hiring was more dependent then on having something like a physics or a computer science degree, and now maybe it's not. So therefore, they told the system that in the last 10 years, the best people to hire were men. Therefore, the system said, okay, hire men. It's garbage in, garbage out. What these systems do is replicate prior historical records. An obvious other example is if you had a a nine-month break between jobs, maybe, or or during a job where there were no projects or something like that, that could be learnt by a machine, potentially. And that that gap might not be so obvious to a human, or or they might just say, well, that's obviously maternity leave going on here or something like this in a a project setting. But I suppose the internet law bias question is a bit different than the who is on the ground developing these kind of systems. And I think that that question is changing as well. So we used to have this idea that there was a very, like, you know, nerdy person in a room who was maybe just like a a white male person who was based on the training pipeline, based on not really being a very desirable place for more diverse candidates in employment, and they were going to be developing these systems that were going to be deployed at scale. I think what we're moving to is a bit different from that, which is huge tech companies, which are trying quite hard to be more diverse in their tech sector, are developing tools which are deployed by small businesses, governments, and so on, and using these big tech companies effectively as contractors to deploy machine learning models. And so who is inside these small companies or these uh, these governments deploying these tools or procuring them? Well, that's going to be quite a diverse array of people. But do they have the skill set you need to oversee these challenges? So maybe the diversity is moving away from a traditional one of you know, what are the demographics of your coder to what are the interests of these large companies? Where are the data coming from? Where are the models coming from? Uh, it may be in a more corporate way. You know, maybe we're worried about the, that kind of provenance of these systems. And what about racial bias? as well. So this woman, Latanya Sweeney, found that when she put her own name in, and who hasn't put their own name into Google, because she was called Latanya Sweeney, which in America connotes, you know, a woman of colour, she noticed that the adverts that were coming up were adverts offering her like legal help if she got arrested. Do you need someone to help you not have a criminal record sort of thing? And she was a professor at Harvard. (laughs) The case is emblematic because it's not that she was actually suffering. It wasn't like she lost the job because of it. It wasn't like she got sacked from Harvard because of it. But the slur to her personality, perhaps to her group, another really interesting area. Do these adverts describe a group rather than a person? And is that harmful to the group? Made it really of interest to her. And she set out and probed basically that the the Google AdWords system as it existed then, which was in a very primitive state, this is an early case, was indeed discriminatory because it did attach these adverts when people put in names that it described as black sounding, black, black associated. So that, that's a really kind of easy example of this kind of discrimination. And what's noticeable, I think, in this case and nearly all the other cases, right, is that no one is intending to be discriminatory. The system does this. The system simply correlates stuff that has happened in the past with the most common outcome of it, essentially. Michael will give you all the the, the refinements on that. But it really is just a big correlated statistical system. And yet we believe it's making normative, ethical, moral judgments. So moving on now to future researchers, future academic research, what advice would you give to early career researchers about how to work with policymakers? 
Um, network, 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 network. You can't get to policymakers if they won't talk to you and they won't pay attention to you. So you need to go to things. You need to join the relevant pressure groups for your area. So, for example, in our area, that's things like the Open Rights Group and the the Information Advanced Legal Studies Group um, and so forth and so on. And this, this is what I did as an early career researcher, and it's what Michael's doing now, is you make friends with a lot of useful people, talk to everybody, talk to the other academics in your field, go to conferences, write good papers that people want to read so they want to talk to you, and then give, give radio interviews, you know, interface with the media, write a blog, be on Twitter, for God's sake, be on Twitter. You can't do anything if you're not on Twitter. And the policymakers will pay attention to you and you will get to talk to them. You will find a way to talking to them and influencing them. Staying in your academic hermetic bubble, which I'm sure no one really does anymore, is not how to get to policymakers. Your writing style matters as well. So not only making writing open access, which I think is, is really a key. Um, many researchers don't make the effort to put their research into an accessible place where policymakers could read it were they to have the time. Um, but also avoid uh, the kind of jargon that is exclusive to policymakers. Uh, try and align the language in your field with language that they're using, or at least explain the difference. You know, reference to policy reports in in your work to make that bridge, even if it's not going to be what you're you're going to be dealing with uh, primarily. Um, uh, sometimes, if you write a very difficult academic paper to deal with, we thought our slave the algorithm paper was going to be quite difficult and lengthy, and we're actually surprised by, I think, how many policymakers read this paper, which is really nice. But we then did a smaller version, about ten pages long that was meant to be a more digestible introduction to some of the issues that we we outlined there, um, which has actually done less well. And people already, you know, more, more policymakers read the 65-page version, which is bizarre. But also, in general, I think, talking to journalists as well. Um, Twitter is really powerful for that. All journalists will be getting information from Twitter and, and pretty much, are, I mean, when I talk to journalists, it's exclusively because they've DM'd me on Twitter or have emailed me following something on Twitter. Um, uh, I think that's just a place to be. And, I, and we're very lucky in technology law. I think in technology law and policy, because a lot of the people from all disciplines who do it have a techie, geeky side, it's very smooth. Your The Twitter inter- interactions, it's very smooth. Uh, pe- people work and collaborate very well online. Um, I don't think that's probably going to be the same in all fields, but but um, uh, but really that, that helps. The last thing, I guess, for, for early career researchers, uh, you've got to look for the Windows opportunity, Windows of opportunity in, in policy. In our case recently, that's been the algorithms and decision-making inquiry, uh, the AI inquiry, the data protection bill. In the UK context, in a European context, we had our work cited by the pan-European group of regulators uh, because there were consultations out, although actually they, that was we responded to that, but they put it uh, our work in beforehand. But we then engaged with them back and forth on that area. And I think looking for those, and Twitter does help you with identifying those, but just seeing that they're around is a way to to get yourself into that debate. And, and people will come back and, and talk to you and say, you know, say yes to some of those things. Michael Veal and Lillian Edwards, thank you so much for sharing your stories for UCL's Parliament and Me podcast. <laughs>